Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, hello. Hey, Jonathan. What's going on? Not much. I'm just excited to be here. Yeah, I was going to say not much. I'm just recording a podcast with you, so it's super fun. Hey, I have a question for you. Go for it. What would you do in this particular situation? So would you want your favorite competitor, so think about a sports team or something like that, would you want them to win one championship, one title, and then that group's or that person's arch-rivals win the next 10 championships or titles? Or would you want that arch-rival to never win a championship, but neither would your favorite team or competitor? Oh man, that's a good question. So either your team gets a championship, but your arch-rivals, your hated rivals, get 10 in a row after that. Or your arch rivals never win anything, but neither does your team. I'm going to have to go, my team wins one championship, even if my arch rivals win 10. Because I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and when we finally won the Super Bowl, that's basically what happened with the Patriots. They won the next year, and although their (laughs) dynasty might be over... They've won so many more championships than us, but I still take solace in that one single Super Bowl when we beat Tom Brady, and he was in his prime. Like, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's won so many more. It's just like that one makes up for it all. Exactly. I feel kind of similarly. See, I, I've i lived in the South for a longer period of time in my life, but I grew up and got a lot of my sports allegiances while I was still living in western New York. So I'm a Buffalo Sabres fan, a Buffalo Bills fan, and a New York Mets fan. And needless to say, I've experienced a lot of losing. (laughs) Now, that being said, and while I have, like, even though it hasn't happened in my lifetime, you think about, like, the Mets have won two World Series, the last one, I think, in 86. They've been a couple times, or they've been a couple times in my lifetime, once in relatively recent history, uh, that I really remember. And so, like, I definitely also resonate with that, um, the idea of, you know, hey, we got that one, it's fine, nothing else matters. But I think because of that, because my teams have always been so bad, I've found just as much joy in sports rooting against people. (laughs) And so I think I would actually say, you know, I'm fine if we never win a championship as long as the team that I like the least never wins. 
unfortunately, the team that I've liked the least in football has been the Patriots, and that's just been a really unsuccessful venture, too. But if you, you know, if the New York Yankees never won another World Series, and neither did the Mets, I think I could live with that. <laughs> I had, to, I, but I had to ask about rivalries today because it, it kind of comes up in our psalm. Uh, so, would you be willing to read Psalm 13 for us? Yeah. Psalm 13 from the Inclusive Bible. How long, Holy One? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my anguish? and wallow in despair all day long. How long will my enemy win over me? Look at me. Answer me, God who hears, my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed. Lest my foes rejoice when I fall. I trust in your love. My heart rejoices in the deliverances you bring. I'll sing to you, living one, for being so good to me. I have just a little bit of experience with the Inclusive Bible. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Yeah, the the Inclusive Bible is not necessarily a widely used translation, at least in circles that I run in. And I think part of that is because it comes from a more Catholic context. This came out of the group called Priests for Equality is a group of priests, obviously, working within the Catholic Church uh, to end sexism and advance issues of gender equality within the denomination, which, as you know, uh, still does not ordain women and has not in its you know, entire, you know, almost two millennia of existence. These priests started off this long project back in the 70s and 80s, trying to rethink how we talk about scripture, how we talk about God and how we use language for a purpose of using things differently in worship. So they didn't set out necessarily to re-translate the, the Christian scriptures. They instead were looking to make their worship experiences more inclusive, and that led them to realize, hey, we've essentially rewritten and retranslated a lot of the biblical text. Maybe we should just work through the whole thing. And that's what produces this text you know they're very explicit in their bias towards equality and gender inclusivity and so they really are using this translation in not as much a scholarly way but for the purposes of of worship and creating a more inclusive environment i think this is incredible in its use of a really diverse and really wide group of names for god lots of inclusion of characters in the story that have been kind of pushed to the margins and bring them back to the center. So an example that fits into both those categories is instead of calling God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there are points where God is named the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, or Jacob and Leah, you know, because Jacob had kind of a complicated series of relationships. Uh, check out Genesis if you want to learn more. But I, I so appreciate that because even the ways that God was named in that tradition and context erased certain characters that were crucial to the story from the story. They really do a lot of important work. And I think the way that they worked through this psalm in particular was just really powerful. And I 
was looking for an opportunity to introduce the Inclusive Bible to the podcast anyway, so I'm glad we had the chance to use it. Uh, but as you were reading that, what were some of the things that stood out to you uh, from this psalm? The line that's fascinating to me is, Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed. Lest my foes rejoice when I fall. I think for me, I always think of like people who are really holy, don't have enemies, shouldn't have enemies, <laughs> shouldn't have foes. And the psalmist clearly does. And the, the foes are pretty evil. I mean, the foes are rejoicing, right? It seem yeah. to be like, oh, I've won, I've prevailed. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I think that that theme is really, really common in the Psalms. Um, and I think for a lot of our modern day sensibilities, it makes us really uncomfortable because it is very othering so to speak it's very clear to say these are my these are my enemies and god help me defeat them um, and other places in the psalms the wishes against the enemies are far more explicit far more violent to contrast that with the message of jesus to love your enemies and bless those that persecute you it can kind of you know make us a little uneasy make us feel a little tension What's the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the word right, because I think it's German. Is it schadenfreude, where you feel joy at the expense of someone else? That like sounds... you, watch something, you watch something bad happen to someone, and you like it sparks a little, a little joy in you. Yeah, that's... that's how I think of, lest my foes rejoice when I fall. That sounds uh, like a, definitely a German word. I don't know if that's the correct <laughs> German word or not. Me, me neither. Um, but, so, yet, but that idea is really common in the psalms, especially in psalms like this that are psalms of lament. Uh, these expressions of anguish and despair, psalms that ask these really powerful questions, psalms that just complain to God or accuse God of being unfair, uh, really demanding answers to those questions. All these things that are really found throughout the Psalms. About a third of the Psalms fit this category, and yet they are a type of scripture that we're just really uncomfortable with, at least I think in our culture and setting. So is there anything else that, that stood out to you about, about the reading? Right after the line I, I just read, mm -hmm. when the foes are rejoicing, there's a, a turn, I think. It's like, how long must I wait how long will you hide your face and then suddenly it's i trust in your love my heart rejoices right and there through the end it really has a totally different turn or totally yeah. different tone after that turn in the in the psalm what does that what does that communicate to you okay i have a, i have a lot of questions here okay <laughs> the first one is the bible scholar in me is this actually two psalms and somebody didn't divide it correctly. <laughs> like, should it have ended? And then the second one is a different praise one. Hmm. And then the other one is, is this, is the praise and the rejoicing and the singing, is it concurrent with all of the questioning? Or is this, is the psalm written later? And they're thinking back, and they've made it through all of the 
of the questioning. I think with that last or that second group of questions, you can also ask the question, is this apparent turn, is it genuine? Or can you read it kind of tongue-in-cheek? You know, I think all those questions are incredible ones to ask of something like this. But going back to your first question, I actually would probably say that this psalm is meant to be seen as one. Uh, this form is pretty consistent throughout the lament psalms of, of addressing God, complaining to God, petitioning and arguing that God should do something differently and giving God motivation to do so. So this like very, what could be perceived as like aggressive prayer, essentially. Um, and you can look through like the first four verses of this psalm to kind of meet this form. And then towards the end, there's a turn. There's a turn that looks at probably two different parts of like a confession of trust. So it's like a, an idea about the present moment. It usually starts with a but, you know, but I trust in your love. My heart rejoices in the deliverance you bring. And then there's a moment looking towards the future too, some sort of vow of praise. So all of these categories I'm gratefully using from one of my professors at Wesley Theological Seminary, Denise Hopkins, uh, her book, Journey Through the Psalms, and she wrote a commentary on uh, a couple parts of the book of Psalms. Uh, she was just instrumental in my understanding of lament psalms and just really appreciate this framework. I don't know, it seems like the psalms have this thread throughout it of these really honest prayers with God um, that I really appreciate. I love the Psalms. I know. We say that every time we talk about a Psalm, but I'm going to say it every time. I think they are, they're beautiful. They're underutilized. And I think part of the reason, which we may talk about, is things like this. The permission that they give for us to feel certain things not only because it's okay because we're human beings there's like scriptural examples of how we can bring a really raw energy before god in these kind of interactions and experiences so i think that idea really brings us to the conversation about what's the point what's the point of this psalm and seth i'm wondering as you look at this story look at this psalm what does this particular prayer say about the psalmist's relationship with God? I should preface this by saying I'm an only child, but this reminds me almost of like having an older sibling. Like sometimes they really get on your nerves and you're like, how long? <laughs> like, will you forget me forever? You were supposed to pick me up at school and you didn't. And I waited there until you, until mom came home and picked me up. But at the same time, they're your older sibling and you care about them and you laugh together. And there's this, there's this tension between being upset with them sometimes and trusting them. And that, that tension, that tension doesn't negate either of those feelings. Like you can hold both of those together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the fact that both the joy and the anguish are existing together in the relationship is a sign of an actual relationship. It's a relationship with trust. You know, I would argue that healthy people don't go around saying this kind of stuff to people and about people that they've never met or haven't, you know, have just met. I mean, say what you will about, like, political commentary and all that stuff, but, like... 
you're just going up to the cashier in the grocery store and yelling at them, how long until you scan my pierogies and let me go home? Like you need you need to check yourself and do some work because that's problematic. But I think that kind of confrontation, that kind of tension, that is part of a healthy relationship. And I don't want to dismiss the reality of the despair, the reality of the suffering that's evident here. But I think even based on the way that some things are said, they're appealing to what they know to be true about God's character, about the way God operates. You know, it, it, the fact that they're asking these questions about how long must I wrestle with my anguish and wallow in despair, that seems to indicate that they believe that God would care that they're asking those questions, that God doesn't want them to do those things. More so than that, that confession of trust, the vow of praise at the end, also kind of very clearly supports that idea of a broader relationship at play here. I don't know, that transition that transition to the confession of trust and the vow of praise at the end kind of makes me uncomfortable, too. I, I think you highlighted it in your questions before, but there's almost part of it that feels kind of inauthentic. And I think even though we don't utilize lament well, as a, at least in our cultural context, I think in a lot of spaces, we don't, we don't grieve really well either. We don't know how to express doubt and despair. This also kind of gives permission to a really underhanded suppression of lament and grief and doubt too. Because it's like, you need to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You need to have faith in the midst of your despair. No matter what questions you have, you need to be positive. And that's really harmful to people who are hurting. That's why I wondered, for me, if that ending section makes more sense in retrospect. Like, when you're already through it, is that when you can say that your heart rejoices in the deliverance that God brings and that you'll sing? Because that's so hard to do in the midst of it. Yeah. And as you think about, I mean, think about the person sitting down to write this, right? You know, how much emotion, anger, frustration, sadness is going into each stroke of the pen and they finish that like the first part that's talking about their enemies and everything going on maybe they just have to leave it there you know you think about then you know writing it down in a journal and then reading it later and adding to it or even maybe the act of writing out that prayer is enough of a processing and expression to get you to the point where you can even utter those last few verses. Like enough of an acknowledgement of your anguish, feeling defeated, feeling like you're suffering before God. There's just enough there to spark that profession of faith. Should we talk about the names? Like, I feel like that is helpful. Like, we don't have to talk about the names in in a way that's that excludes or includes, 
like gender. But I think the names are helpful. Yeah, well, I, I think the reason that these names are coming through here is because of some work that I did in working through this psalm in the inclusive Bible. Um, you know, when you see when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's referring to this very sacred name for God that people in the Jewish tradition dare not utter. And the inclusive Bible, they use it quite often. And so I was trying to think about the context of this scripture and include some other names for God where most of our translations might use Lord. And I think you're right that that gift of having such a wide array of names for God available, depending on our situation and our circumstance, can add power to prayers like this. I love the name Living One for God. I think it gets at the energy and the essence of God is life and abundance. But there's so many, many beautiful ones. Do you have any favorite names for God that you like to turn to that might be, you know, beyond God or Lord? Yeah, I like God who sees. I think it's helpful. Maybe it's helpful to me, actually, because my eyesight is not very good. Mm. Like, it's interesting to think about a God who who can see me fully and perfectly and clearly and constantly. For me, I think God who sees both has has a human quality because I can see, but it also has a divine quality, I think, because I can't really see that well. But I think God can. Yeah. It's both a connecting point and a separation point, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and there are so many names for God. So many. Some that are in Scripture. Some that come from the Christian tradition. Many that come from other religious traditions, too, and highlight different experiences of the divine. And I so appreciate how names for God kind of unlock something for us. And it sounds like that's that's your experience, maybe, with, with the name the God who sees. Because if we can learn anything from the Psalms, and especially from the Lament Psalms, it is that God is big enough to handle however we're going to pray, that there's a level of flexibility, there's a level of openness that God desires in these kinds of conversations. And the fact that probably about 50 of the psalms, 50 of the 150 psalms, take on this kind of tone. They're almost accusing God of malfeasance and malpractice. And they've been part of the church's worship tradition, been part of the Jewish worship tradition for centuries. I think that gives us another opportunity to maybe name God in a different way to maybe not use a name for God that's so positive and maybe say, God, you're being unfair. God, you're being unjust. God, everything is falling apart and I can't see how you're putting it back together. And in those, in those moments, we're creating real connection. We're opening ourselves up to not only the reality of our emotions, 
but the possibility for further connection with the divine. And I think that gift of prayer that the Psalms offers to all of us is so underutilized. We feel need, we need to put on a face, say the right things. If you read some of these lament psalms, you thought about just saying those things in an extemporaneous or spontaneous prayer about God. <laughs> like you get run out of you know most of the churches you'd set foot in by saying some of this stuff. But it it is in the scripture of our tradition, and I think it gives us the freedom. It liberates us to express what we are truly feeling, even in moments of grief and anguish, to God who sees and God who hears, God who cares. I used to always think it was strange when you'd see the pocket New Testaments, or even the full-size ones, but it's just the New Testament, plus the Psalms, and then sometimes they have Proverbs. I always thought, well, what a weird construction. But I think what we've been talking about is the way that the Psalms can can supplement our prayer life and deepen it and widen it. That of course that's a natural fit to pair with our New Testament. Sometimes I think the New Testament can present us with this aspirational picture of what the Christian life can look like. And I think the Psalms recognize that it just doesn't always look like that. Sometimes there's still pain, there's sorrow, and we're wrestling with our anguish and wallowing in despair all day long. And that that is part of our faith journey too. And that God's with us through all of those experiences not just when we're when we're walking and looking just like Jesus. I think about that. I think about that a lot right now, in light of protests that are going on, Black Lives Matter protests, facing systemic racism, and the byproducts and intentional products of white supremacy in the United States, especially. And I think. The Lament Psalms offer us a beautiful and really meaningful opportunity right now to, no matter where we are, and I say we right now as, uh, as white people who've had privileges and benefits from this system, no matter where we are in our journey with reckoning with our privilege and recognizing systemic racism, where it is, how prevalent it is, we have the opportunity to identify a desire to see the wrong made right. But even more so, I think of the way that this gives a, a resource to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to those that are experiencing unbelievable grief and anguish and pain and suffering. It's a way that I, I can't really understand or connect with in the same way, but I am grateful that our tradition allows for space for raw, unfiltered despair. Because hearing from the black community, paying attention to the black community, of course, there's beauty and art and so many things that make the black community what it is. And part of what's defined it has also been this experience of suffering 
And just like we were talking about the tension before, there is that tension in their experience as well. As I was doing some reading about this, I came across kind of a retelling of this psalm by the womanist scholar Will Gaffney. This is coming from her blog. It's titled A New Slash Old Psalm of Lament. And I just want to acknowledge that my voice reading this, I don't intend this to be my voice. I intend to amplify Dr. Gaffney's voice and hope to share this as an expression of solidarity with the black community. But I I just want to read this part. So this is a quote from Dr. Gaffney. Says, if you don't mind, I'm going to take some liberties with Psalm 13. How long, Holy One, will you forget us forever? How long will you let them kill us? How long will you let them deny us justice? How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from us, from what they do to us? How long? How long must we bear this pain in our souls? How long must we have this sorrow in our broken hearts? How long? How long shall those who have made themselves our enemies be exalted over us? How long? Look at us. Answer us. We are crying out to you. How long? Show us something. Because right now they are putting us down like dogs in the street. They walk out of court saying, I have prevailed. They rejoice and we are shaken. More than shaken. We are shook. How long? If you're following along in the psalm, you may be looking for the shift to trusting in God's faithful love and rejoicing in her salvation. I've got to tell the truth in church today. Today, for me, it's too soon to move to rejoicing. I have so much more to lament. So Dr. Gaffney here, this post on her website seems to be coming from a sermon that she delivered. And as poignant as it is for this moment right now, she gave the sermon in 2017. And throughout this, she lists the names of countless men and women who died because they were black at the hands of police. And it gives a new setting to the idea of lament that also pushes me to make sure we leave space for the lament to linger and not move to any professions of faith that might feel more positive or comfortable. Moving there can sometimes be cutting off what is real and what is allowing us to connect with God in the most genuine way in a particular moment. You and I come from traditions that are pretty liturgical, that hold the, the liturgical calendar in high esteem. And I always think, especially on Good Friday, the temptation is to do just what you were talking about. To look ahead at what's coming. And I just wonder if that isn't really a disservice. That part of Good Friday is to put yourself in the place of the disciples 
who think that it's all over. That even though Jesus kept telling them, it's just so hard to believe that that's not the end. And to just sit in the despair and the hurt and the confusion and the struggles and to just hold it. I think there's this tendency for preachers to just say, oh, look, Jesus is on the cross, but Sunday's coming. I think even in the liturgical calendar, it gives us room to just sit in the pain. I think that's part of the goodness of Good Friday. Faith that doesn't leave room for pain is a faith that's disconnected with the reality of our world. And much like the death and resurrection of Jesus teaches us something about where our comfort lies when talking about grief and anguish, if anything, the life of Jesus, God made flesh, also shows us that God truly cares about the nitty gritty, the bones and flesh, the dirt under the fingernails, the blood unjustly spilt, that is so much a part of the human existence. So again, I highly recommend that everyone check out a new slash old psalm of lament, a sermon by Will Gaffney on her website, willgaffney.com, for more of this incredible, incredible resource and reflection on what it means to lament, especially among a community that's experiencing persecution and suffering. For us, for this podcast, Seth, I think it might be good for us to pray. Can I pray for us? I'd love that. God of the hopeless, you experienced human despair, anguish, and separation through Jesus. Help us to experience your compassion, empathy, and healing through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for being big enough, for being strong enough, for simply being enough in the midst of our doubt and lament. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're still in the Old Testament. We're looking at Jeremiah 20, verses 1 through 6. But until then, leave us a review. Find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it.